Okay, you're in the right room, everybody. If it's, what's today? Sunday, September 8th for uh, the first of a CSP 2019 uh, mini-series entitled The Globalization of Israeli Culture. The idea for the program came about when I watched all of... Now, here's the first question I have for you. Is it Stiesel or Stissel? Yeah, you see? Is it Stiesel or Stissel? Depends on your Yiddish dialect. Okay, they are both right? Yeah. What do you say? Stiesel is probably more... It's probably more... Okay, I say Stiesel. Everyone was like, no, it's Stissel and... The answer is, they're both right, but Stiesel is more right, the way I say. I watched all of Stiesel, and then it said to, I, I think it was on Netflix, right? Yeah. I watched it on Netflix with Amy. We really enjoyed How many of you watched Stiesel? <laughs> How's that? And then, of course, my first question is, why is this on Netflix? And then, do you, did you note that when you finished watching, it said, you, if you like Stiesel... You like, and then there was like 25 other movies that were Israeli. And I was wondering, what the heck is going on? So, uh, who came to New York with me? Okay. So I emailed Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, who is the cultural editor for The Forward, and I said to her, who should I bring to Orange County that can talk about this? And she said, well, you have to bring Shana Weiss. And that's why we have the program, and that's why we have Dr. Shana Weiss. But before we get there, a few quick notes. This is our 19th year. I'm glad that you all came out tonight for our program. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. Tomorrow is the second in our two-part series. And um, our topic for tomorrow is Pop Toys and Power Politics, Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest, which is another cool way to understand Israel, Israeli music. And many of the songs that you know from your youth or from your middle age <laughs> or from your childhood um, came out of Eurovision when Israel won Eurovision. So we're going to talk about Eurovision and the politics of Eurovision and what's happened recently there in Israel. So that's tomorrow. Anyway, this is our 19th year. I want to thank those of you who are donors to CSP. We had our summer fundraiser. Summer, is summer still on? When does summer end? When does fall start? I know it's September. September what? Good news. You guys have 14, 13 more days to donate to CSP. So if you haven't participated in our annual summer fundraiser, I urge you to. Almost all of our money comes from you. Um, Shana, these are our funders because we do and we're grateful for the Federation and Jewish Community Foundation who give us um, a grant, who have given us a grant each year, but 90% of our money comes from you. So thank you if you've donated. And if you haven't donated to support us, please do it. If you're not a member of our 100-person legacy uh, circle, it's a good time to join the legacy circle, which means I have like here, it's a non-binding letter of intent, which you say I will make some kind of gift to CSP one day when I'm no longer here, so we don't take your money now. One day you can leave us something. The good news is that ensures the future of CSP and many other organizations in Orange County who participate in this program. But uh, there are grant, there are challenge um, opportunities. So if we get four more people to sign letters of intent, we will get $1,500. And that, for our micro-budget, is, you know, three programs, right? So there's many ways to give back. If you're not a member of our legacy, I know who you are. I will find you. I have a drone. I don't have a drone. I do have your home address. No, please consider joining our late. There are, there are reasons to do it. I have the letters here. It's a one-pager. And um, that would be great. It would be great for CSP. And it would be great to have you in our legacy circle. And it's a way of giving us money without giving us anything. So think about it. I want to thank our check-in team. Who was check-in today, Davida? Rosella and Ada? No? Fran. Fran, okay, thank you, Fran. 
You'll be hearing more about our special arts program coming up this year. But we have a one-week artist in residence with John Adam Ross and a one-month artist in residence with Toby Khan. So um, I've emailed some of you about it already, but you'll be finding out more over the next um, few months. CSP Travel, we finished our third international trip. We've done three trips to New York. Out of our three international trips, we have two broken ankles, which shows you how serious we are. One is over there, Harry Roush, and the other one is Beverly. Where's Beverly? Beverly? So just a question, was it worth the broken ankle and surgery to go on one of our trips? No. <laughs> Harry, what do you say? Why are you turning red? <laughs> You're processing? Okay, so the point is, it is a, this is not a sightseeing trip. It is an adventure. You have to train for it physically. We're going to have a physical from now on, as well as IQ tests, tests about the materials. We are heading to Israel October 18th through 30, 2020. I know many of you are coming because we sold out our first bus in, tw in 24 hours. So we opened a second bus and we sold out 90% of it. We have two rooms left. So we're taking 80 people to Israel and we're gonna do incredible things. So if you wanna take one of the last two rooms, see me. Um, because of Shirel Horovitz, and um, I know some of you actually went to Israel and went on tour with Shirel Horowitz the next day after she was here, Aviva and Fred, um, we are looking at a boutique art trip with Shirel in the following uh, fall, uh, October 2021. So if you're interested in that, that'll be a much smaller trip and really focused only on arts, a variety of arts in Israel. And then Italy, December 20, uh, 12th to 22nd, 2021. Venice, Florence, Padua, and Rome with Mark Michael Epstein. That's what we got coming up there. Um, we are on iTunes, for those of you who don't know. Um, and you can hear over 200 of our lectures. Just go to, o go to iTunes and type in OCCSB podcast. We are recording tonight. That's Grendel over there. You can hear everything you're saying to each other. So only say nice things and may appear on the podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, feel free to go to OCCSP.org and make a donation to CSP. We appreciate your support. Um, you may laugh, but people have done it. So that's been very nice. Please take a moment to turn off your cell phones. And remember, we are in the third year of our CSP hat challenge. Um, some of you have taken it very seriously so far. We have pictures from all around the world. Grendel's wearing his hat over there. Cliff is wearing his hat here. Cliff wore his hat. Boy, I got a bunch of photos. How many countries? How many cities? Um, well, there were six, 15 cities. 15 cities. In four countries. In four countries. So he is automatically a finalist already in one of the categories. <laughs> we have it with the Aurora Borealis. Lance Aronson took his diving off the coast of Hawaii and he's down below wearing a CSP hat, which then fell off and became part of a reef. Um, so, yes, I have. The, I shared the pictures with you already. So, okay, uh, Dr. Shana Weiss, you ready? Okay. Oh, it's only been an hour, so. Okay, just correct me if I got it wrong. You are the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Okay. The new, the new associate, relatively new. Relatively new. Um, Dr. Weiss was the inaugural Distinguished Visiting Scholar in, in Israel Studies at the United States Naval Academy, which I know some of you graduated from. She earned her PhD from New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies. She completed postdoctoral fellowships in Israel at Bar-Ilan University and Tel Aviv University, where she taught courses about Israeli history and society. 
She has also taught at Brooklyn College and New York University. Her research interests converge at the intersection of religion and gender in Israeli public sphere, as well as, well as the politics of Israeli popular culture. She's uh, completing a book on gender segregation in the Israeli public sphere, which will come out sometime very soon. I'm uh, sure you all know about it. So um, before I say please join me welcoming, I hope you enjoy the honey that we got from Israel for each of you to wish you all a sweet new year and to thank you for your support um, for CSP. But uh, going back to Dr. Weiss, please join me in welcoming Dr. Shana Weiss to Orange County, California. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari, for organizing this amazing program. And I also just want to give a special shout out to Andrea and Jerry, who schlepped in. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, right, so Ari went over my profile, right? I work at Brandeis now, or we direct an Israel Study Center. I want to say, even though that Brandeis is far away, um, we have a lot of programming that is accessible online, um, newsletter, uh, lectures that are taped, etc. So I encourage you to check out our website as well. So I think we have an idea, right, about academics, or maybe people with PhDs, that we're not, or that maybe I'm not supposed to say as a person with a PhD, but I love television, right? It's an amazing medium, it's fascinating, it's changed a lot over the past 10 years, right? And there's so much to say about how it connects with our culture, um, and really, I could go on just about that, but I'm not here to talk about America, right? I'm here to talk about things that are going on in Israel, although they're obviously related. But before I talk about our topic tonight of ultra-Orthodox Jews, of Haredim, right, in Israeli television, I wanna back up and give us some background on the history of Israeli television, and also talk a bit about ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel and who they are. Right, so the Israeli leadership, right, even pre-state, you know, if we're thinking of the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, they did not approve of television, right? They saw it as corrupting, they saw it as bourgeoisie, decadent, anti-Zionist, and because of this, Israel was one of the last countries in the region to get television, okay? Jordan gets television in 1956, Egypt in 1960, Israel in 1968, okay? So this is very late. Israel only has one channel, a state-run channel, until the 80s. I was talking once with a friend who researches uh, television um, and culture, especially in the former Soviet Union, and when I told her that fact, she said, even by that point, what was then Czechoslovakia had three channels, <laughs> right? Um, what, right? So there's, and so there's a real, I would say a delay, right, if we're looking at the rest of the world. Um, you get a second channel in the mid, in the mid to late 1980s, and then, you get multi-channel and then a multi-channel cable in the 90s, right? And of course, when you have cable television, right? We know this from here. There's more of a market. There's more hours to fill, right? So there's more opportunities for people. And generally speaking, 
local audiences prefer local programming, right? That may be changing now, we can talk about that, maybe during the Q&A. And what's fascinating to me is that given its relatively late start, right, Israeli television has become a real player on the global market, right, which is a really interesting thing to think about. Another thing is that starting really in the 1990s and the 2000s, right, Israel starts to ask itself questions. Who is an Israeli? Uh, you know, who defines? Who, who gets to speak for us, right? And this has ramifications not just politically, if we think about things like Oslo and shifting demographics, right, but culturally as well, right? Traditionally in Israel, the elite was a secular, right, Ashkenazi elite that not, didn't control just politics, but also controlled cultural product, production as well. And when you have many different channels that are not as connected to the state, right, that are private, you start to see more diversity, both in front of the screen and behind the screen, right? And we know that there are similar things happening in America, right? Discussions of representation, discussions of minorities, right? This is a conversation that's happening in Israel as well. And of course, while tonight, while I focus on Haredim and ultra-Orthodox Jews, right, we have to remember that this is just one node, right? That there's been a huge boom in cultural production from Israeli Arabs, right? Uh, shows like, you may know, Arab Labor. There's a new show called Muna, right? Um, Russian-speaking Jews, religious Zionist Jews, Mizrahi Jews, right? This is one part of this increased diversity. And it's really interesting to see uh, that on the Israeli screen. So let's talk a bit about ultra-Orthodox Jews, right? Like any good academics, you know, there's a, they debate about what to call this group. Sometimes we use the word charedim, which is the Hebrew, literally mean trembling, right? Like the shakers, it's the same sort of idea, right? You tremble. Um, sometimes you use the word fervently orthodox, right? Uh, there's a couple of different terms that are thrown around. So who are we talking about, right? Who are these people? And of course, I'm going to focus on Israel, but there are ultra-orthodox populations in New York, in Europe, right? In, um, in LA, right? In smaller communities around the world. So ultra-orthodox Jews see themselves as both following Jewish law strictly and rejecting a secular way of life, or rejecting secular culture, right? And of course, these are huge generalizations, right? And we'll talk more about that as it goes on. Um, but in Israel especially, they have their own social institutions, right? They have their own neighborhoods, they have their own schools, right? And in this, and we'll talk about this, men and women tend to live in different spheres, right? With the exception of the immediate family. Right, schools are segregated, social life is segregated, etc. Ultra-Orthodox Jews are different, right, than what we might call religious Zionists or in America modern Orthodox Jews, Jews who still consider themselves observant, but are more involved with secular culture. In Israel, that means going to the army, going to secular college, etc. They tend to be ultra-Orthodox Jews of Ashkenazi descent, right? Jews from Europe. However, and we're gonna talk about this today, 
we see a growing phenomenon of Mizrahi Jews, right, Jews from Arab and Islamic lands, who have taken on or become interested in an ultra-Orthodox way of life, which has resulted in really interesting tensions right, within ultra-Orthodox society. What's important to know, and I think this is actually the most important thing about ultra-Orthodox Jews, is that it is a modern phenomenon, okay? It is a response to the crisis, right, of what it means to be Jewish in modern times, right? When I teach, right, we talk about the Jewish version of the Enlightenment, right? The Haskalah, some of you may know that term. Questions some people will say during this time, how do you solve the issue of Judaism and modernity and these challenges? You change your traditions, right? That's what Reform Judaism comes out of. Some people say the issue is that we don't have a state, right? That's where Zionism comes out of. Some will say we all need to become socialist, right? That's where things like the Bund comes out of. But some Jews will say the answer is to double down on our traditions. And that's where orthodoxy comes from, right? It's not to say that Jews didn't observe Jewish law before. Of course they did. But this self-conscious defense of tradition, that is what defines orthodoxy as a modern movement, right? So while there are claims, right, of an unbroken chain of tradition, that these are the way things were always done, right, if we take the lens of a historian, right, we can start to poke holes in that and realize that it too is just as much a phenomenon of modernity, right, as other Jewish movements are. Of course, right, ultra-Orthodox Jews are a huge, diverse group, right? I remember teaching when I taught at the Naval Academy, many of my students had zero experience with Judaism, uh, much less Israel or Islam or any sorts of things. And one of my students asked me once, Dr. Weiss, no offense, but if they're Orthodox, shouldn't they all be doing the same thing, not different things? Which, fair, but no, <laughs> right? There's no Catholic, you know, orthodoxy doesn't have a central body, right? It's a collection of a lot of different subgroups. And like any other Jewish part of the Jewish world, right, there are subgroups upon subgroups. In Israel, right, this population has grown, right? Um, about one out of every nine Israelis is, uh, identifies with the ultra-orthodox world. Right? What those changes will mean for Israel demographically, right? we don't know. There has actually been decline in the ultra-Orthodox fertility rate. We can talk about that maybe during the Q&A. Uh, but it's interesting to see because I think Israeli society is shifting in that sense. All right. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about the representation of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israeli visual culture and then introduce what I think of as three modes or three ways that I've understood ultra-Orthodox Jews on Israeli TV. Uh, I have some clips, I have some pictures, and then I want to think about what this might mean for us going forward, maybe draw some connections to American representation and think about what's going on with the politics of all of this. So obviously I need to go back to film right, to talk about older representations. And probably the most famous representation, 
right, of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israeli cinema is a series of movies called Tu Kuni Lemo. Have any of you seen any of them? Right, we have a couple of, this is like a deep cut, right? Um, it's actually based on a short story, the first movie is at least, uh, and in it, it's really, it's about a village idiot, right? Um, the story takes place in the shtetl, at least the first one, doesn't even necessarily take place in Israel, right? And it's a symbol of the old world, right? If we think of Zionism, if we think of this idea of Israel as the new Jew, as a strong, muscular, secular man, the ultra-Orthodox Jew is the opposite of that. He's not strong, he doesn't fight in the army, right? He's goofy, he's dumb, right? And these movies play on these stereotypes. There's a follow-up, Kuni Lemel in Tel Aviv, that's the one in the middle, Kuni Lemel in Cairo, that's why he's on a, um, on a camel in front of the pyramids, right? But this visual imagery is really the legacy that was in Israeli culture until very recently. If ultra-Orthodox Jews appeared at all, right, in cinema and, and, and later in television, until very recently, it was, it was as a flat character, either as a butt of a joke, right, or as it, as it is here, or as a symbol of an old world, right, that was to be left behind. And it's a foil, right? It's everything that is modern Israel is supposed to not be, right? This is what we left behind in the shtetl, right? Then we can make fun of it, right? But foils, right, the literary foils depend on stable messaging, right? So as I talked about, right, when this idea of what it means to be Israeli starts to break down in the 1990s, right, so too does this idea of what it means to be a Haredi Jew, right? Haredi Jews increase in numbers. Some of them start entering the workforce, right, entering politics in different ways. And these questions start being reflected in culture as well. And what we see is on the Israeli screen, right, we see more and more representation from what I'm going to call an authentic or internal point of view, right? Unlike this, which is really, you know, I don't necessarily think they had researchers, right? You start to see consultants being hired. You see people from the community entering the world of television production. And there's an idea and an interest in reproducing an authentic culture or subculture, right? Um, I interviewed one of the producers of Stissel, and she told me that um, they hired consultants from the ultra-Orthodox world right, to train the actors, not just in their voices, but also how they walked, right, how they held themselves, right. She told me a story, um, they used a lot of, for their lines, they used a lot of WhatsApp memos, that's like how Israelis like to communicate, um, and she told me that there's a series of very funny WhatsApp memos, or voice memos, from Michael Aloni, who plays Akiva, and the consultant, as he tries to get like the new, new right. So he's like, new, new? No, new, 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 new. Right? So there's a really an interest in you know, immersing themselves in that world. And one of the first shows that we see right, that deals with this is a show called A Touch Away, Merchak Nigia. It's actually on Amazon Prime now. This show is from 2006, 2007. Um, it is an eight-episode miniseries. It's set in B'nai Brak, 
uh, an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood near Tel Aviv. It's a sort of Romeo and Juliet story. Um, here's a still from the movie. Um, a Russian immigrant, a secular Russian immigrant, through a variety of circumstances, ends up in B'nai Brak and falls in love with the Haredi neighbor next door. And I'm not going to talk so much about the Russian-speaking Jewish community, which is very much part of this, but it's interesting to me that one of the first times that this group was portrayed in such a way was with another minority, with a different group. Um, in this, in Merchak Nigiyah, right, in a touch of way, it's a highly controlled world. There's a lot of monochromatic tones, a lot of white, black, neutral tones, a lot of sepia, right, things are kind of washed out. And that's contrasted, right, with the Russian family. They're loud, they wear lots of colors, right? There's a deliberate contrast set up. What's really interesting to me is that this show was actually funded by philanthropists, by funders, um, by the Avichai Foundation, right? Um, it was part of also a project with Gesher, which is an organization that promotes understanding among different sectors of Israeli society. And they felt, right, by show, having this show that showed the issue, the struggle of Russian Jews as they made Aliyah, as they tried to immigrate into Israel, and also the struggle of ultra-Orthodox Jews that ever promote understanding and discussion in Israeli society. It's so really interesting to me to think about, right? This, we don't usually, or we don't always think about as TV as having some sort of public message, right? TV was connected more with government in America in earlier days, but in terms of private funding, right? And if you think about, it, if you were a funder, right, and you had this proposal, do you think this is worth your money, right? How do you measure this, right? It's a really interesting question, right? Um, it's a great show. Did this change anyone's mind in their actual behavior, right? These are really interesting things to talk about. So when I think about these, how Haredim are portrayed on Israeli television, I tend to think about three kinds of representation. And the first one really comes from what I would say a touch away. I would put Stiesel in this category. And I'm going to introduce these three, and then we're going to go into them each more. And the first one is, we're just like you, right? We have stories like you. Um, we have, you know, we have ways of thinking, you know, we have family drama like you, right? We're not so different, right? And what's the best way to do that, right? The best way to do that is actually often through romance, right? Um, we can talk about that, where ideas of love come from and whatnot, right? But what's this great equalizer? Romance, family drama, right? When, um, in one of my favorite interviews with Dove Glickman, who plays Shalom on Stissel, the, middle, uh, the father, the patriarch, they asked him his motivation. You know, what do you think about when you want to play this role? And he said, my motivation for, for Stissel is the Sopranos, but instead of violence, chalent. <laughs> and there's actually something to that. It's not just funny. It's... It's funny, but if we think about how food plays a role, right, how violence is sort of subsumed through food in Schüssel, it's something I still think about, but it's something that can, you know, everyone can relate to family drama, right? The other mode is 
we're better than you, right? And I would say shows like Shabab Nikim, which I'll talk about. I'll show a clip from that. I think that's less known in America, um, uh, are trying to do. And then the third one is something is off. Something has gone wrong. It's not the same symbol of a rejected old world, but if we think of shows like Autonomies, um, or if any of you have been watching Our Boys um, on HBO, um, I think it's showing maybe sort of the darker sides and the darker themes. And I'm gonna go back to each one of these and talk about them a bit more. Right? So Stissel, I, I know that most of you have watched Stissel. I didn't bring a clip because I figured most of you have seen it, right? It's fascinating to think about, right? In New York, Temple Emmanuel had an event that they did with the Federation, right? That they brought in the stars of Schissel. They sold 2,300 seats in four hours. They opened the event again, or they did it another night, sold out again, right? Um, I read an article about the event that people called every day begging for tickets, right? Um, the UJA, one of the UJA presidents, said that there was more excitement for this than when Obama spoke, right? So it's fascinating to think about, right? What is this show, right? It's not, it's not a show like Fauda, which is like terrorists and shoot it up, right? That I think is easier to understand its appeal. Uh, and I think it's this really interesting mix of radical particularity, right? It doesn't apologize. It doesn't try and explain, but also dealing with radical universal themes, right? Everyone feels like they can relate to Schlissel, right? I have a friend who works um, for the JCRC in St. Louis, right? So a lot of interfaith work. She told me that she had a meeting with all the priests, all the Catholic priests. They're all watching Schlissel, <laughs> right? So what does it mean, right? Um, and how does it end? It's this really interesting mix of saying, we're not so different than you. You may think, you know, we look different, we dress different, but in terms of our own lives and our own interior lives, it's the same kind of stories that we all deal with. Death, loss, love, moving on, etc. And the show does that in a way that's really astounding, right? And I also think through Gim, right, that's about a different kind of Orthodox Jew, right, but a show that many of you probably have watched and a show that is dear to my heart. I think it's on Amazon Prime now about religious Zionist singles in Jerusalem, also is about, we're just like you, right? Surgim is about modern Orthodox singles looking for love, right? To show, it's a, it's a trope that Westerners can relate to. And what this genre, right, is it's a usual show about unusual people. And I think that's where it lies its appeal. And it takes these religious characters, but it omits a lot of the controversial issues, right? There aren't a lot of politics in Schlissel, right? We got a little mention of it. There's a little bit about Yom Hatzma'ud, Israeli Independence Day, right? It, there are some things that play a little bit of a role, but the drama in Schlissel, the drama in Srugim, the drama in A Touch Away are all very deeply personal. They're very local. The next mode I want to talk about, right, is this show Shabab Nikim. Shabab Nikim is about four yeshiva students, sort of entourage-esque, at a yeshiva in Jerusalem. Uh, they, many of them are Mizrahi, 
right? So they're part of this new wave of ultra-Orthodox Jews coming from, uh, who are from Arab and Islamic lands, or their heritage is, I should say. They're often second and third generation Israelis. And these guys, they're good looking, they're having a good time. There's a line where they say, we're the story now, right? You better pay attention to us. And in this, they're saying, we're doing it better than you, right? And before I talk about it more, I wanted to show you a short video. This is from the Israeli news, so you can get a sense of what's going on um, in Shabbat all right, black is the new black and becoming an Israeli cult classic. And joining us live are the creator and star of Shabab Nikim. We uh, have them both with us, Eliran Malka and Daniel God. Hello, welcome, welcome to the show. I have never seen uh, a staff more excited about a guest on our show. Really? You got. You guys are stars. Oh, stars. Look at him, he's still humble. Yeah, he's, he's still, still humble. humble. So, <laughs> and I've seen the billboards everywhere, and everyone's like, wow, okay, all of these guys are so good looking, and I just figured that it was a real kind of docu-reality show, but it's not. It's not. How did you come up with the concept, and why, you know, delve into this community for a creative I think, outlet? I think that, uh, like any other Israeli, most Israeli in this uh, country, I thought what I thought about ultra-Orthodox mainly from news. Mm. And uh, when I moved up to Jerusalem, I saw a lot of young, uh, good-looking guys <laughs> from Yeshiva that uh, live in a conflict with, between the modern world and the old world. And the old world and the, uh, this is where I came from. With and you also idea. studied in a film school, as such, was mainly people who were who were religious. So were this was this type of did that influence the the film education you got, no, or it was just happened to be the school you it went happened to? Happened to be the school I went, but uh, when you I think that Jerusalem is very, uh, it's a city that connected to the TV show, very good because when you are there, you see a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, from this. Uh, so for you, what is it like? You're, you're now like, you guys are like biggest heartthrobs. Are you getting used to it? You're already shy, but are people recognizing you now all the time? Yeah, people say good things and it's uh, like, you know, it makes me happy. But uh, the main idea is like, you know, to, to take the, the story that Aliran wrote and uh, to tell the story of people, lots of people here in Israel that anyone didn't tell them before. And um, that's it. It's really interesting. Now, explain the meaning of the word, because it means one thing in Arabic and another in, uh, in uh, Hebrew. So in Arabic, Shababnikim is guys. Yeah, it's like okay. a group. But uh, it's, um, 
It's a slang. It's mm -hmm. a slang in uh, Hebrew, which uh, said that uh, it's like uh, wise guys. It's, right, uh, like Shabbat. They yeah. say this, like the Gan Eden yeah. in my son's yes. school, who yeah. Shabbat, right? It's yeah. like rebel, rebels. It's, uh, but like in a cute way, like a mischievous. A, yes. Mis mischievous. In a cute way, very cute way. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, the, but the roots of this uh, world, it's people that are between two worlds, torn between two worlds, and the show about this. Do you feel that the show now that that you're you know putting the show together in a creative way will help kind of with with dialogue and a more understanding between you know secular Israelis and the and the ultra orthodox communities? Um, this is like my biggest hope, you know, when I did the role and when I read the scripts. So um, like I felt it um, it can connect, you know, the uh, the religious guys and also the Chilonic mm -hmm. and. Uh, Amazing. It's yeah. really amazing. So now we gotta we gotta you know spread some some light and get you guys on uh, on Netflix in English because people are waiting for the English subtitles so all of us Olim can understand and people in the states. Continued success. Thank you guys Thank so you. much for Thank coming you. on. And now I'm gonna see your billboard and I'm gonna say I know him. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky me. Our so sorry. Um, so right as you can see right as she is fangirling, so to speak, right, um, is in this show, right, they, these guys are cool. These guys are good looking, right? They're, Shabbat, they say it's like a, they say it's a, a nice word or a sort of kidding word. It's more pejorative than that, right? This is a word that generally refers to guys who should be in yeshiva, right, but are sort of hanging around and not being in yeshiva. But it's using that and it's reclaiming it. Right, and saying that these are actually the most interesting people going on in Israel and doing the most interesting things. Did anyone recognize the celebrity cameo? This is a deep cut in Israel. So that was a, a person named Yehuda Levy that is one of Israel's biggest heartthrobs, right? That's a clip from the show. He plays himself. He runs into them in a very expensive shoot store, a Brooks Brothers. There's no Brooks Brothers in Israel, I checked, but... Um, right? Because they want new suits. And he says, and he goes up to them, they show the line briefly, but you might have not caught it. And he says, this is what I love about you guys. Everyone else in Israel, they don't care about nice things anymore. They're sloppy or they don't dress nice. And if you've spent time in Israel, right? That's not a very formal society, right? But what he says is that you Haredi guys, you have style, right? You take it seriously. You love your European suits. Right? And that's what I learned from you. Right? So here you have Yehuda Levy, who's like a Brad Pitt, right? Really, and is a huge Israeli actor, immediately recognizable, saying, like, you guys are the best. Right? And these guys, right? They're good looking, they're heartthrobs. There was a whole huge controversy um, where yeshiva students who signed up to be extras in the show then got kicked out of yeshiva when their rabbi saw them on television, which is like another thing. Um, but really caused a lot of people to have discussions and think about it. And one of the interesting things in the show is that these characters are Mizrahi, 
right? Or some of them are Mizrahi. And they face discrimination when they go on the dating scene, right? The semi-arranged marriage, right? You actually see the uh, matchmaker. There's a whole line. He doesn't call himself a matchmaker. He calls himself a, like, marriage agent. He's like a high-class matchmaker for Haredim, right? And they're not getting as good matches, right? And they start to think about issues of discrimination, right? Why don't you think I'm as good? Right? And there's, the show has actually provoked a lot of discussion about racism within ultra-Orthodox society. Um, they are making a second season. I am thrilled to see it. And I also want to say even showing ultra-Orthodox Jews as funny is an act of rebellion. Right? If you remember, even in Shtisel, right, the colors are all sort of washed out. There's not always a ton of talking. Everyone's kind of sad. I was talking to my friend Mike about it today, about Schtissel, and he was like, why is everyone crying all the time in Schtissel, <laughs> right? And to show ultra-Orthodox Jews as funny, as attractive, as good-looking, right, that's an act of rebellion against these original Zionist ideas that I talked about. And it reflects this Haredi middle class, right? Uh, this rising Haredi middle class that wants to wear nice suits, wants to take vacations, and they don't necessarily see that as conflicting with their own ultra-Orthodox society. Uh, okay, skip this part a little bit. Right. Um, of course, right, with all these discussions and, and all these shows, right, it's a lot about masculinity. Right? We don't see a ton. There are women on these shows. There's actually a great female character on this. But it's interesting to think about, in a show like Shababnikim, could there be a female version? Right? What would that look like? Right? These are all questions to think about. There is, I will say, a great subplot of one of the character's twin sisters, um, who is a secret Torah scholar. She secretly learns Jewish texts. She flies to New York to go on dates. Um, because when you're a wealthy Haredi person, you can do things like that. And she makes jokes about Yeshiva University um, and the guys there being lame. I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that. Um, but even still, right, she's, a, she's able to do that because she comes from a very wealthy family, right? So she's given a bit more leeway. So it, the show, in a really interesting way, deals with issues of class and gender, although I would definitely love to see more about um, gender, and especially more with women. So the third trend that I want to talk about is this, I could call it dystopian. I'm still playing with it. I'm still thinking about it. Um, but of course, we all know that there are hugely controversial issues with Haredi politics in Israel. Um, there are issues of army service, gender separation in the public sphere, right? And some people see these shows and they say, this is very nice, right? But there's a sort of whitewashing, right? It doesn't deal with these huge issues, right? And it doesn't deal with the complexity of Haredi society or the challenges of an insular society. And they're not necessarily saying that everything in a Haredi society is bad, although there is plenty of anti-Haredi sentiment in Israel that I think is often unfounded, but that's for another day. Um, but I think taking a turn and as a response to some of the things we've seen in shows like Shtisel saying, well, maybe there's something different going on, right? Maybe there are some trends in Israeli society, right, that are troubling or coming from this um, ultra-Orthodox group. So one of the most interesting things 
is a show from 2017. It's called Autonomies, right? And it's a dystopian show, right? Um, which is a show that's not a genre that I actually haven't ever seen on Israeli television or film. There's a couple of novels, we can talk about that. And I'll show you the trailer in a bit, but I just want to give you a little bit of information about it, right? It's set 30 years in the future where there's a civil war in Israel. And what happens is that the state divides into two, a religious state in Jerusalem, an autonomous zone, and a state of Tel Aviv. And of course, there's communication between these two worlds. And the show focuses on this go-between, this character Broidy, you'll see him. And like any alternate reality, it's recognizable, right? To make a point, right? We want to, we otherwise might take for granted might what would be seen natural or inevitable, but it's meant to show us a warning, right? By showing a world that's recognizable, right? But only different, right? And of course, those of you who've watched shows like The Handmaid's Tale know this genre very well. These shows often function as political warnings, right? This is where we might be headed. But before I talk uh, more about Autonomies, I'm just going to show you the trailer so you can get a sense of what's going on. And what I want you to do, if this will show up, oops. Um, what I want is think about how is this shot differently, right? How are the colors different? How are the sounds different? If you can tell the difference, let's say, between the Hebrew and the Yiddish, right? How is this different than the things we've seen before? So let me bring this back up again. תלכלוך שלכם, תשאירו אצלכם במדינה, אל תכניסו את זה פה אצלנו. סלח נגוס חבגרץ, עזיב לאינקס הרי בזרח, נפנד המדינה צידו אוטונומיה. יש לנו אישור מהבז דין לחיפוש בבית שלך. עלתה בפניי בעיה שההכרעה בה היא מן הקשות והכואבות. העותרים קברו באפר ילדה שאינה שלהם. בעוד ילדתם האמיתית חיה וקיימת רחוק מהם ומאורח חייהם. אני מבקש מבחינת רבי, אני מתחנן. תרדו ממני. פסק הדין עלול להצית חבית של אבק שרפה ולהחזיר אותנו לימים שאנחנו אפילו לא רוצים להיזכר בהם. ימים של מלחמת אחים.
So, right, that's very different, right, than a show like Shizzle, right? It's doing something very different, right? Exploring a darker side, right? Thinking about the politics of Israeli society and thinking about where things are going, thinking about what might happen if there is a complete break, right? A break between a religious state and a secular state and what that might look like. And of course, what's fascinating is that like Shtisel, what's connecting is family, right? Israel is a very family-centered society, right? So here, in maybe the opposite way, in a radically different way, right? Family is what brings these two states back together. They can't stay separate for long. Sorry, just bring back the presentation. And of course, and this is the last show, and this is a show before I wrap up, is I wanted to talk about our boys, okay? So our boys is actually going on now. It is on HBO. It is being broadcast now. Uh, what's fascinating about it is if we think about from just a matter of production, right? One of our themes tonight is globalization, is that this was a show made, made by an Israeli production company, made by Keshet, which makes a lot of the Israeli shows, but broadcast on HBO and is being shown on Israel as well. Our Boys covers the events of 2014, okay? So the events in which three Jewish teenagers were abducted and eventually killed, and the aftermath in which a Palestinian teenager was kidnapped by th uh, three Jewish teenagers, basically, and then burned alive, right? It is not a pleasant time in Israeli society. It's very fresh, right? And the show has attracted a considerable amount of controversy um, the show focuses on the story of the Palestinian boys. Some people feel that this is inappropriate. Some people feel that it creates an unfair balance of society. Netanyahu called for the show to be boycotted, right? I think that has other political dimensions as well, but it's interesting that he said that, right? The creators of the show, right, which interestingly are modern Orthodox man, a secular Jewish man, and an Israeli Arab, have spoken about why they chose to do the show, have been criticized for their participation in all sides. But what's really interesting to me about this, and this actually hasn't been discussed, is that this show does a phenomenal job of going inside the religious society, right, that produced the people who committed this act of revenge, right? And it's not, so, it's not simplistic in saying that, you know, all these people did it, or, you know, it's a simple line, but showing how does a thing like this happen? Right? The directors of the show talked about how they wanted to show the anatomy of a hate crime. And they spent, the show is almost meticulous in its slowness and how it goes through and goes into this world. Um, and similarly to a lot of the things we've seen tonight, right, the, the people who committed this crime right, are actually Mizrahi ultra-Orthodox Jews. And they exist sort of on these margins right, of ultra-Orthodox society. right. Does that have a reason, you know, does that influence why they committed the crime? Does that influence their perspective, right? These are all things that the show discusses. And I think, you know, I haven't seen all of it yet. It hasn't aired all of it. But I think it's really sensitive portrayal of religion um, is really, really interesting and also goes into this mode of sort of darkness, right? The main, one of the main investigators is a Mizrahi Jew who grew up in a religious family and has left religion. So he sort of acts as this go-between, between the world of secular Israeli intelligence, right, and the religious society. And in it, there's a real debate, you know, what is Jewishness, who is the most Jewish, right? 
and it plays out in really interesting and complicated ways. I highly recommend this show, um, even if you think it's controversial, and maybe even especially if you think it's controversial, because it's interesting to see what's caused um, so much discussion and, and so much fur within Israel. So, right, we have these ways of thinking, right? We have these three modes that I think sort of build on one another. And what's fascinating to me, right, we have the, what I've said, the we're better than you, or we're just like you, we're better than you, and oops, maybe we're worse than you to make it, to oversimplify, is how it's been picked up in the world around us, right? How it's been picked up by people who don't necessarily have any exposure, right, to ultra-Orthodox society or Israel and what their connections are, right? Because what's interesting, I think, is that for shows like Fauda or shows like Homeland, right, that seems sort of more universal, right? Shows about terrorists, shows about, you know, action shots, etc. But what I think this shows is that there's also still an interest, even in the global market, in conflicts between tradition and modernity, shows about family, Right, shows about sort of the essential nature of who we are. And what's fascinating to me is to think about what might come next, right? I have no idea. My plea is that for more female-centered characters, as is always, not just here, but in general. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens. One of the interesting things, and a lot of you have probably heard about this, right, is there's going to be an American adaptation of Schlissel. What they do with the show, right, who knows? It'll be really, really interesting. Maybe it'll be good, maybe it won't be good, right? But, and who knows when it will come out. These projects can take a long time. But I think that will be a really interesting point of comparison. And what's great about this is that I feel like the best is yet to come. So I hope you enjoyed. I'm happy to take questions and thank you for coming. Question um, in Israel: How the Haredi population breaks down in terms of class, specifically income level? Because I was under the impression that with um, nine plus on average members of a family, that many of the Haredi lived at the poverty level and were subsidized uh, by the government. So my question is: If you were to break it down in terms of the top one percent, upper class, middle class, and then poverty. How would that break down in Israel? Okay, so generally speaking, the Israeli Haredim are poorer than the rest of Israel. I do not have exact numbers for you. I will say that the Taub Center for Israeli Policy is a phenomenal, phenomenal social research um, policy in Israel, think tank. They publish a lot. And if I remembered the numbers that I read in their reports, it would be from there. So that's why I would recommend. I will say, however, that there are a lot of changes going on in Israeli society. One is that the fertility rate of Israeli, of the Haredi women is dropping. Um, it is not nine kids anymore, and it's not seven. It's probably closer to five. That's still a lot, right? But that's a lot less than it used to be. There's higher participation in the labor force, right? Women actually participate more than men because of the idea that men should be studying um, Jewish texts. And you also see a rise in what I said of this Haredi middle class, right? So there is a rise of a wealthier group of Haredim who often um, who go to Haredi colleges um, and get academic degrees. And we are seeing changes in those society. So yes, is there a lot of poverty? Yes. 
is there are a lot of changes as well where you can look at suburbs that are middle-class suburbs except everyone is ultra-orthodox? Also, yes. Uh, is the increased participation in the middle class due to women getting better jobs? I think it's one of the drivers. I think it's definitely one of the drivers. Ultra-Orthodox women tend to be more in touch with general Israeli society because they work, um, but it's definitely one of the factors as well. But of course, once you have an academic job or you have a job and you're paid well, right, you don't necessarily want to reproduce that poverty for the next generation, right? And these are all conversations that are happening as well. And as I always tell my students, right, we hear about the bans. Right? We hear about, you can't have an iPhone, or rabbis ban the internet. Well, you only ban something because everyone is doing it. If no one had an iPhone, you wouldn't have to ban it. Right? So it's always important to remember these push and pulls of what we hear. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been very interesting to think about TV shows reflecting um, the Haredi communities conflict with secular Israel. Are there similar trends happening that deal with the conflict between Jewish Israeli communities and um, Arab Israeli communities at this time? Yes, there are definitely shows and other cultural works that deal with that. Um, one of the shows that maybe some of you have heard of was a show called Arab Labor. It ran for a couple of seasons by a writer named Said Kashua who's an Israeli Arab writer. Um, it is a sort of Seinfeld-esque show about a family, uh, a Palestinian family in East Jerusalem. Uh, and it, it's, loosely, it's roughly based, or it's a sort of satirical take on Syed Kashua's own story, which is that he's a Hebrew-speaking writer and journalist, um, trying to sort of figure out where he fits in this larger world. Um, there was a show recently called Muna about an Israeli Arab woman um, I don't know if that's been on American television yet, but um, who is an artist and has chosen to represent Israel in an international competition. Um, so there are definitely those as well. I would say that I think for the larger Israeli public, it is sometimes easier for them, or not easier, I would say different. The issues of Haredim are different because they're, because they're both Jewish. right? When you deal with Israeli Arabs, and also there's the political situation well comes in a different way. These conversations come in in different ways. Um, actually, this is when I wrote an article about Shchisel. These are some of the things I talk about, and that's where you see with these linguistic differences as well. Uh, is Autonomies available on Netflix, Showt uh, HBO, American TV? I've seen it play at a few film festivals, but I haven't seen it pick, been picked up anywhere. Okay, my, my question, I have a two-part question. One is, um, I do understand that some Haredim have been watching these shows. Mm -hmm. I read the story about um, Shtisel and, and there was a song in Shtisel right. that was a great story that maybe you'll share oh, with people. So are Haredim watching all these shows about Haredim? I mean, are many <laughs> watching? And if so, you know, how is that affecting them? But the other part is, um, I understand obviously Israelis are watching these shows. And so how, if at all, has Shtisel and Shababnikim affected um, Israeli society. Right, so I'll just start with the story. So one of the interesting things about Shtisel is that they are generic Hasidim on purpose. Okay, so they didn't want to take any one group. They didn't want to say your Vizhnets or your Bells or whatever. So they sort of mix up different things. Um, because they didn't want to assign the burden of representation to any one particular subgroup of Hasidic Jews. So there's a scene, there's the grandma 
who is one of my favorite characters. She's actually played by two people, um, which is another thing, but they invent this song, right? And it's made up. It's a nigga and it's a wordless melody that she knows from her childhood. It's made up. They composed it for this. But it's beautiful, she sings it, there's like an emotional scene with it, etc. A couple of days later, this melody starts showing up in like Haredi Simchas, right? And we have videos of it and whatnot. So it's this really funny art imitating life, imitating art, right? And we know, again, did every single person watch, Haredi person watch Tissel? No, of course not. Did a lot of them? Yeah. And we know that and they talk about it. Um, there are Haredi websites, there are Haredi news publications that discuss it. Is this good for Haredim? Is that, this is bad for Haredim? Right, should they watch it? Should they not watch it? Um, in terms of the effects, I think these things are really hard to quantify, right? Um, you can feel nice about a TV show, does that change how you vote? Right, does it change how, you know, and also there's also, Israeli society is really segregated, right? It's one thing to watch Jusuf, let's say, from your house in, I don't know, let's take a Ramad Aviv, right? A bougie neighborhood north of Tel Aviv that's a very secular sort of upper class neighborhood. Does it mean any different, does it you know, mean anything different if you watch that and then don't encounter any other Haredim? I don't know, but I think there is some interest. Um, one of the things that's trendy now in Israel is to do food tours of Haredi neighborhoods, especially um, on Thursday nights which has its own, own nightlife, something I actually recommend that you guys should do. Um, uh, where you go and you go to, you know, ultra-Orthodox bakeries are open through the night on Thursday as they get ready for Shabbat. So you can go to a Haredi bakery at 1 a.m. and eat fresh challah. Great experience. Um, highly recommended, right? So there is, I think, some of that interest in things going on as well. How much does that translate into actual behavior or political behavior? I'm on the more cynical side. But that's me. By the way, for those of you who came with us in 2017, we went to the Midnight Challah Bakeries in Neoshari. It's an experience, yeah. It was awesome. Chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we also met with Manasseh Bamba from oh. Haredi World. And those who are coming back uh, in 2020, we're going to meet with Haredi soldiers who fly from the ICF. So we try to explore this issue in part of the things that we explore. So my question is very basic, just to build on that. So other measures like ratings, you know, um, the way uh, it might be displayed in articles or uh, conversation, or um, were there was it intentional to only have two seasons of Schitzel, or was there a purpose of why it concluded when it did? So I'll start with this issue of seasons. Israeli television is not very does not have a lot of money. Um, and they will make one season, and then if they get enough money and enough steam, they'll make another. That's why there's like a three-year gap. Um, and that actually, and what's interesting is that there's been a couple of shows in which the American interest, or I should say the international interest, has spurred the making of an additional season. That actually happened with the original Homeland, with Khatufim, where they made one season, it became Homeland, right? The, it's the Hebrew they translated as prisoners of war, and they made a second season of the Israeli version. Um, in terms of ratings, we have ratings from the Israeli side. I don't know them off the top of my head. One of the incredibly frustrating things about studying this is that these digital streaming services are black boxes. We, they know how many people watched it. They are not telling anyone. And the people who sell their shows, they sign nine disclosure agreements. 
right? They can't talk about it. I've tried. They get very nervous very quickly, understandably. They don't want to be sued by Netflix, right? So we have no, we have no idea how many people watch Diesel, how many people watch Fauda, right? I mean, some people know, but it's not me. So that's actually one of the really incredibly frustrating things about this is that, you know, if you think of television historically, you think about, like, the Nielsen ratings. Were they perfect? No. There are plenty of flaws. But at least it was something to work with in terms of data. So when I do research, I rely a lot on critics, I rely on anecdotes, but we actually don't have these hard numbers outside of Israel. We had a speaker here not too long ago who talked about censorship by government of television shows, that is shows that don't make Israel look good. Is, there, is that still going on, censorship by government? So in Israel, traditionally, culture has been somewhat state-funded, and there have been issues. However, those issues are more with cinema, um, more with movies. Television is largely a private endeavor, and there's been, like, for example, I'll say, there was a prestigious film festival in which a woman who was a Holocaust survivor who became a Palestinian uh, human rights lawyer, or a human rights lawyer for Palestinians, won top prize. That is a film festival funded largely by the state, right? Um, Miri Regev, who's the Minister of Culture, did not like that. She pulled funding for the festival, right? Is that censorship? Is that not, right? We could do with... I'm not necessarily saying it's great. I don't know if I would call it censorship. However, these are private endeavors, right? When we deal with television, largely speaking. Maybe they received, there are some instances where they received um, funding from groups like Cashair, um, or Gashair, excuse me. Um, but these are commercial enterprises. They're in it to make money. So the state doesn't necessarily have such control, right? I mean, this is, we have an example of this, right? BB said a couple of weeks ago, don't watch Channel 12. They dig up dirt on me and they show our boys. Do you think Channel 12's ratings were affected? No. Right? So, you know, however, I will say if you look at some of the discussions that the creators of Our Boys have talked about, they do talk about what they feel is an attempt to shut down conversations. Um, but it's not the same kind of funding structure as it is for cinema, so it plays out in different ways. I'm just curious. I always thought Hasidim and um, Haredim were different. And is there a difference? And is there a difference in the portrayals? Right. So I didn't go into this, but I'll answer now. Is Haredi is an umbrella organization or umbrella term? Within that, there are different camps. One of the camps is the Hasidim, which come which date back to the late 18th, early 19th century, a group of people who felt that you could connect to God not just through traditional Torah study, but through prayer, through meditation, right? Things that a normal person could access, right? And then you had the people who were opposed to that. They were sometimes called the Misnagdim, which just means the opposers. Sometimes they're called the Lithuanians, um, the Litvaks, right? Which comes because the base of that opposition was based in Lithuania. Try explaining that in a college classroom. Like, none of them are actually Lithuanian, none of them have been to Lithuania recently, uh, whatnot. Um, but there has been more representation, I would say, of Hasidim than Misnagdim. Um, I would say because there is a larger Israeli interest in Hasidic culture um, that's reached into the 
popular sphere, a lot of Israeli celebrities are interested especially in Breslov culture. Um, there's a lot about thinking and creativity and emotions. So when people are portrayed, they tend to be from the Hasidic group. And I also think because in Hasidic culture, there's an interest in the psyche and the self and emotions in a way there's not necessarily in the same way in Lithuanian or, or sort of misnagdic culture. So we, but we can also say in another way that all Hasidim are Haredim, but not all Haredim are Hasidim. And uh, the Shabbat, the um, Shtisel or Shtisel, those are Hasidim. Yes. But Shabbatnikim are Midnagdim, or are they also Hasidim? They're a mix. They're, They're a mix. mix. I would say, but closer to the Misnagdim right. end. Okay. We'll take a few last questions before we wrap up. So we tend to look at this as outsiders looking into Haredi uh, culture. Um, and you've given some hints of the Haredim look looking outside towards us. Uh, there was a uh, one of the um, vignettes in, in Schtissel is when the grandmother got a television and she was watching things that you're not supposed to watch, but she was watching them anyways. Um, then you mentioned that a number of the Haredim have watched Schtissel. They must have, you know, how do they watch it? They watch on their iPhones? Do they have televisions? Do they have iPads? How are they doing that? And how is this starting to affect their view of the outside world? Right, so the internet has really changed things, right? It's a lot easier to watch TV when you don't have to watch it on a TV, right? Um, so like any society, the internet has radically changed, right, how people think, and it's been a big deal in Haredi society. Some people have used it to find other people who are questioning or find other people who maybe were victims of abuse, right? Or to talk about issues that have been swept under the rug, right? Um, but yeah, it has definitely changed and people are definitely watching. I would say usually often on iPhones or iPads or on you know, tablet computers or things like that. Uh, but they don't, but not all of them necessarily see it as a rebellion, right? This is why it's important to think of this wide group of behavior. They see they're Haredi, they're part of the modern world, they take things very seriously, and yeah, they watch TV, or you know. And I think that's one of the really interesting changes we see, and that's what we talk about, sort of this middle class of Haredi society that's uh, taking on more bourgeoisie values. But of course, it's having huge, huge changes in Haredi society. The use of Haredi WhatsApp groups and how news is passed around is another thing we can spend a lot of time talking about. Okay, do we have one last question? I just have a comment okay. to, to this question. Hold on, I'll hand you the mic and then we'll wrap it up. If you go on Facebook, the group that's on Facebook, you see that many of the respondents on Facebook are Haredi. And the questions are by, um, either non-Jews or, or secular Jews, and then the questions about what's going on in Shtisl, and then they're answered by the Haredi Jews. It's so interesting. <laughs> and there are thousands and thousands of people on that Facebook group. I just want to make one more comment in relation to that. I'm glad you clarified what Shtisel is all about, that it's really a conglomeration of, 
of societies because when one watches it, if you're not Jewish, you think that's just wonderful. They're all loving and kind, but if you see a touch away and you see how brutal some of these people were to the, uh, the Russians, if somebody dressed differently, and I had heard of this, you know, from a, an Israeli friend who said in Israel, if you don't dress the right way or this or that, that people spit on you, that people throw things at you. And um, I'm glad to know that Stiesel is more of a, a conglomeration. Well, and you I get think, a different view of it, you don't get a real reality view. I mean, well, this is what I want us to think about is this idea of the burdens of representation, right? And how minorities feel like they need to represent themselves, the good, the bad, the ugly. I don't necessarily think that one is more real than the others. I think they're trying to do different things. But that's what I think is so interesting and what I wanted to come here and discuss. So thank you again. Thank you to Ari. And yeah, love it. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be back here tomorrow uh, for lunch, brown bag lunch. The topic is pop toys and power politics. Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest. We'll, have, we'll be able to hear things and there'll be clips there'll as be well. Okay. And then um, our 18th annual pre-holiday program with uh, this year Joel Gariboff, For Whom Do We Blow the Shofar? is Sunday, September 15th, which is a week away. For those of you who are just back from vacation, um, Rosh Hashanah is coming up. The good news is uh, it's at the perfect time this year. It's like at the end of September where I think Rabbi's Seidman, can you just fix it there? It should always be just the last week of September, Rosh Hashanah. So see what you can do. I, you know, I try to plan a few years in advance. I think either next year or the year after, Rosh Hashanah is like September 5th or 7th. It's really early. So try to enjoy it this year. You have time to prepare. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, I was talking to Marilyn Heron about some of our programs and things that we learned when we were in Lithuania and in uh, Poland. And she asked me to share with the group some really good programs coming up at um, Chapman University. So I have handouts there. Uh, so I urge you all, if you have the opportunity, particularly if you go on the route trip, if you've been to Poland, Lithuania, even if you haven't, um, there's three programs coming up that are really interesting at uh, Chapman University that I would recommend. I'm hoping to do a tie-in for the last one because Glenn Kurtz is coming back and we um, learned a little bit about him and uh, his, his uh, documentary about just a few moments that was captured, the last few moments captured in the village in Poland before the Holocaust. So um, the information's over there. With that, I wish you all a happy Elul. If you're not part of our legacy circle, see me. Have a good evening. See you tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs>